Open your Bibles, please, to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. I did an internet word search on the word bailout this week. And it had 12,800,000 hits. <laughs> the bailout has been the number one topic this past week, and I imagine it will be for uh, quite some time. If you're wondering what all the talk is about, here's the summary. Here's the pastoral summary of the bailout. Some people made some big mistakes, and now we're all in danger of some big difficulty. So our government leaders are trying to create a plan to keep even worse things from happening. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like salvation. It sounds like the story of mankind. Some people, Adam and Eve, made some big mistakes. So we are all in danger of some big difficulties. So God stepped in and created a plan to keep worse things from happening. We're coming today to the Lord's Supper, the time when we remember our Savior. And I would like us to think about our salvation today and our Savior, and think about this term that Hebrews 2.3 uses. It says, so great salvation. Not just salvation, but really great salvation. And I want us to think about the ultimate bailout that God has done, the bailing out of our souls from the clutches of sin and from the eventual punishment in hell. I want to challenge you and call you to a greater appreciation of your salvation as we meditate on some of the most important elements in our salvation. And the first one of those elements is found in Romans 5, and starting in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Down to verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Our salvation brings us reconciliation with God. When we put our faith in Christ, we are made righteous, and that makes us fit to have fellowship with God. You see, the problem is our sin. God loves us, God wants to interact with us, but he can't. And he says that we have to be righteous in order to have reconciliation. These familiar words from 2 Corinthians 6 talk about God's fellowship with, 
or God's relationship to sin, if you will. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. The word unclean there is a synonym for sin. And God says, look, I want to be your father, but I cannot fellowship with sin. And so before we come to Christ, we are locked in our sin, we are steeped in our sin, and God says, I will remove your sin, and then we can come together. And he does that through the blood of Christ. The cross of Christ where he shed his blood and paid for our sin makes it possible for us to have fellowship with God. God cannot have fellowship with sinners. God is not a father to all mankind except in the sense of original creation. But if we have believed in Christ, we are righteous and thereby we are in close, personal relationship with God. Turn over a page to Romans chapter 8, please. Romans chapter 8 talks about some of the benefits of being reconciled to God. Look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but who walk according to the Spirit. What does that mean? That means that when you wake up in the middle of the night and remember that terrible thing you did years ago, that there's no condemnation because God has forgiven you. God's not going to come back. This passage goes on to say, God is the one who has forgiven you. He's not going to come back and and keep poking you in your conscience and saying, you're terrible, you're terrible, you're terrible. God is forgiven. There is no condemnation. Those who are in Christ are forgiven. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. This verse tells me that not only is there no condemnation, but there is a closeness of relationship. There is a closeness of relationship. Those of you that are familiar with this passage know that the word Abba is roughly equivalent to our term daddy. When we come to Christ and believe in him, God reunites us like a close parent and child. God doesn't hold us off at a distant arm's length. Ergun Kenner, who used to be a Muslim, now is the president of a Christian seminary, he says this is one of the absolute distinctives of Christianity, that we talk about God as Father, and not only Father like he created us, and then maybe he's distant, but Father as in a close relationship. 
The Muslims don't think of God as their father. They don't talk to him in a familial way. They, don't, they aren't comfortable with him. They're just hoping against hope that somehow they can do enough good that he won't be upset with them in the final, uh, final judgment. We have a close relationship. God is our father, our daddy. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we don't know what we should pray for, as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. God says he is going to help us beyond our awareness. When we pray, we will pray and say, oh God, do this, do that, do the other, help, help, help. What God says is, you don't really even know what to pray for. You know, you might, uh, you might pray for a safe trip when you get in the car to go somewhere, but you don't know exactly what to pray for. But the Holy Spirit does, and he comes alongside and says, you know what, you're just an ignorant human, and I'm going to fill in the gap here. God loves us so much, we are so close to him, that he is going to help us beyond what we can even ask for. Look at verse 28. This very familiar verse. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Do you know what this blessing is? This is the blessing of peace. Why is it the blessing of peace? It's the blessing of peace because when I get up and go and move along through my day, I can rest in the fact that my heavenly Father who loves me, who I am close to, who is trying to who is taking care of my life, he's going to make sure things work out the best they possibly can for his glory and so I can rest in that. I don't need to chew and pull and worry and be consumed with every little thing in my life. I can say, you know what? God is in control. That's the wonderful blessing of peace. But it only comes to those who have been reconciled to God. Verse 32 is the, the last blessing that I'm going to note from this chapter. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Surely this is talking about spiritual blessings, first of all, but I believe it's also talking about the needs of life. And the basis of the concept is this. If God looked down from heaven and said, the only way you're going to be saved is, is if I allow my son to experience death, and if I pour my wrath out on him, then you will escape my wrath. If God would do that, won't he take care of your daily needs? Won't he give you the things that you need in the future, whether it be that future in heaven or that future here on earth? Our salvation brings us reconciliation with the creator of the universe, the God of heaven and earth is my Father because I have believed in Christ, His Son. 
The second thing that salvation brings us is in Hebrews chapter 2. Turn there with me if you would. Giving you a little Bible exercise today since I'm using various texts. Hebrews chapter 2. This is a couple of verses that ought to be underlined in your Bible if they're not. The second part of God's salvation that we ought to rejoice in today is liberation. Hebrews 2.14 Inasmuch then as the children, that's us human beings, have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise shared in the same, in the flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he might release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The eternal word of God, Jesus Christ, took on a human body and gave his life to appease God's wrath against sin. And because of his sacrifice, the devil can no longer hold death over our head. Because of his sacrifice, we no longer have to fear death. How, does, how did the devil hold death over the head of human beings before Christ died, the devil could stand before God and say, you can't forgive these people. Their sins have not been paid for. And he was correct because sins in the Old Testament time frame were only covered. But when Jesus Christ died, the power of the dominion of sin was broken and the power of the devil was broken. Listen to Romans 5. For by the one man's offense, death reigned, or it ruled through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many were made righteous. And we go on to Romans chapter 6. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Death no longer has dominion. The result of all of this work of Christ is this. I don't have to fear death. I talked to somebody this week who's a new Christian. I said, are you afraid of dying now? No, I'm not, as a matter of fact. Christian, you probably take this blessing for granted. The blessing that says, I can come here to a memorial service and look death straight in the eye because I know when my day comes, it's really only going to be the death of my body. I am going to blink and wake up in the presence of God. And I have this confidence in my soul because my sin has been forgiven. God has liberated me from the power that that fear held over me. 
Christian, this is one of the greatest blessings that we have, and if you don't know it, it is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, fear that faces unsaved mankind. Uh, I've probably told you this before, but it bears telling again, the people that I work with in the emergency services who are, with, who are around death and terrible stuff all the time, when the word death comes up, they knock on wood, literally. They don't want to talk about it. They're going to, you know, try to stay away from it. They look strong, but it isn't there because they're enslaved by the fear of death. But us Christians, we're not enslaved by it because this is what we know. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, our body is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this one we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed or just dead, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The reason you're able to look down inside, Christian, and know that you're going to heaven is because of the work of the Spirit in your life. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Instead of living in the fearful anticipation of death, we live in the joyful anticipation of heaven. I went to visit Lee Carter in the hospital this week. Uh, one of our members who has had a tremendous amount of physical difficulty in, in uh, the last few years of his life. He came to Christ about a year and a half ago here, was baptized here, and uh, has been a confident believer since then well he he is he is not going to get better let's just put it that way we don't know how long he's going to live but he is not going to get better he has several problems that are going to take their toll in his life and uh he's been in the hospital he's been in the nursing home he's been in the hospital he's been in the nursing home and i went to see him in the hospital this week and he looked at me and he says i can't really say this is going to turn out good And I said, it's going to turn out good one way or the other. And he said, yes, that's right. And you know, he couldn't say that before he got saved. In fact, that's one of the things that brought him to the Lord because he had had a near-death period. And now he can say, yeah, either way, it's going to turn out good. Folks, that's the blessing of salvation and we take that far too much for granted as Christians. That's because we've been liberated in Christ. We've been liberated from that fear. Well, there's a third, there's a third blessing that our salvation brings us. It brings us transformation. Um, turn with me over a few pages to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Another verse that ought to be underlined in your Bible. And it's a familiar one, but we want to think about it. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God isn't, God isn't really fixing your old life. He's put a new one inside. To our way of thinking, we are conquering the old habits. But to God's way of thinking, he has put a new thing inside of you, and it is growing up and gradually taking over your life. It's our new spiritual nature. God says that when we put our faith in Christ, he puts to death our old sinful nature and plants a new righteous nature in us. And that nature creates deep and significant changes. Listen to the kind of change that God can bring. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Now let me just take a little aside here to, to ease your fears. Does that, do those verses say that if you've ever done one of those sins, you're going to hell, period? No, that's not what it says. What it says is this. You are either living in sin or you are living in Christ. And what Paul is writing to the Corinthian people is he says, look, before you folks came to faith in Christ, you used to run the gamut of sin. There's nothing untouched here in the sinful world. And he says, you folks were in some of these categories. But now, but now, you've been changed. You've been saved. You've been washed clean. Here's what this tells me, folks. There is nothing, there is nothing that God can't change in your life. Look at that list. There are some things on that list that we think cannot change. Think about your life. Are there some things in your life that you think cannot change? Not true. God can transform anyone in any way possible. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, you were made righteous. That's what those words mean. Now think about the Apostle Paul writing this verse. What was the Apostle Paul like before he was saved? He was running around the countryside throwing Christians in jail and saying how terrible Jesus was and how wrong this new doctrine was. I mean, he, he, and he did write about himself not in such explicit terms because I think he didn't want to draw attention to himself. He wanted to be humble, but the Apostle Paul was a wicked man. But he was changed he was washed. He was sanctified. Listen to what he writes. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You know, have you ever thought about that as a descriptive phrase of the Apostle Paul? That's the way he was. Hating. He hated Christians. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, 
not by works of righteousness which we have done, not by our own working our way up to God's approval, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. When we accept Christ, God begins the wonderful process of the divine makeover that results in us becoming like Christ. Here's where I'm getting to the real point of this sermon. Do you know how badly the world is dying for change? Just look in any paper, look in any magazine, and see how many articles have to do with change in the human condition. How many self-help magazines there are. How many magazines that are targeted towards, say, men or women or young people have a section about self-help or about change, about dealing with life. And we have the key. This is the key. God's truth that brings us the Christian life. The world is desperately striving for this. If you're here today and you are really struggling in your life and you're saying, I don't know whether I'm a Christian or not, we want to help you. God wants us to show you his truth and to help you to come to know Christ and to help you to conquer the things in your life. Because the fourth thing that's a great blessing to us in salvation is this. Our salvation brings us compassion. What do I mean by that? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Just a few pages away from 2 Corinthians there. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ... If there is any comfort of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Here's the great thing that salvation brings us, Christian. God has made it possible for us to rise above our natural selfishness, which breeds coveting and jealousy and results in lonely lives full of discontent. We have the nature of Christ, which is able to put others first. We have the compassion of Christ in us. compassion that is told to us here in Matthew 9. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you remember about what John Sirkar, our guest last week from Bangladesh, do you remember what he said about how wonderful it was to come to this country to study the Word of God? He said he would have been very happy to stay right here and not to go back to Bangladesh. There are so many things, both small and large, that are better about our country than Bangladesh that it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. I stayed in a room that had an air conditioner. And in the night, with the windows closed and the air conditioner on, it pumped the room full of smoky, uh, dirty air. (laughs) I'm glad to live here. And John said, you know, I could have lived here. And even as we drove around, he talked about the virtues of our country. He He could see different virtues and whatnot. But why did he go back? Why did he go back? It's because of that word right there. Because the love of Christ in him wouldn't let him stay here and selfishly enjoy his own life and let his Bangladeshi brothers and sisters go to hell. And so he went back and he has served faithfully and God has built a wonderful ministry through him. And as we heard last week, there are 16 churches with two more ready to be built. So there's 18 churches because of his ministry. Now, he didn't start them all, but he started what started them. And he could have done that, or he could have stayed here and enjoyed his life. Has the love of Christ, has the compassion of Christ gotten hold of your heart? The Apostle Paul said, the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. Because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them and rose again. We're going to have the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. And we, we want to rejoice in our salvation but that's not enough here's what i mean jesus said do this to what remember me do this to remember me we don't do this to get saved we don't eat this bread thinking that somehow it miraculously becomes christ physically in us and brings us salvation We don't drink this juice believing that we are drinking the blood of Christ. We do this as a way to remember the suffering of Christ in his body and the shed blood, which really is his death, that brought us salvation. But there's more to remembering Christ than to doing a religious activity. You see, sometimes we can come to church and say, well, I had the Lord's Supper today. I worshiped the Lord. I remembered the Lord. That's good. But what was the life of Christ about? Was it about him or was it about others? I would submit to you today that if you want to really remember Christ, if you want to really honor Christ, start with your salvation. 
and say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you for coming to the cross and going through all of those terrible things. And thank you for giving me a home in heaven. Thank you for taking away the fear of death. Thank you for changing my life. And then go right on and say, Jesus, help me to go out of here in your kind of compassion to bring these great blessings to other people. Heavenly Father, give us the love of Christ. Oh, it's so easy to be selfish. So easy. So easy to be wrapped up in our life. Father, help us to see the needs of the world. Help us to see what they are lacking that we have. And then help us to take your truth to them. Make us your missionaries. We pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send us into the whitened fields. I pray in Christ's name, amen.